Welcome to Financial Repression Authority's Roundtable Insight, where the best fund managers, economists, and industry leaders discuss the key investment issues and challenges in the current macroeconomic environment. Hi, welcome to FRA's Roundtable Insight. I'm the host, Richard Panuli. Today is Wednesday, January 31st. We have a very special podcast today focusing on the trend of international cities or more specifically, special economic zones that are being developed globally in different countries. What they are, why they are being developed, what are the features and the benefits they bring or can bring. And for this discussion, we are joined today by Dr. Titus Gebel of Tipolis and our frequent guest, America's philosopher, we call him, and well-known, insightful writer and blogger, Charles Hugh Smith. Titus is an entrepreneur, with a PhD in international law. He co-founded Frankfurt-listed Deutsche Rostov, where he served as CEO for eight years and the Canadian nuclear startup Dual Fluid Energy. He's one of the world's leading figures in the areas of free cities and competitive governance, having published the book, Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You. And uh, he's also, uh, as the uh, legal the chief legal officer, he's played an important role in the establishment of the most ambitious special zone to date, Prospera in Honduras, which, among other innovations, introduced his own common law code and an innovative agreement of coexistence between residents and city operators. Uh, so he's done several special economic zones, and he's the president of Free Cities Foundation, which works to enable and promote free cities around the world. Charles is author, leading global finance blogger. Uh, he's the author of several books on our economy and society, which, which relate to the discussion today. Uh, some of these books are A Radically Beneficial World, Automation Technology, Creating Jobs for All, uh, The Nearly Free University and the Emerging Economy, Finding... Uh, uh, sorry, Pathfinding Our Destiny, Preventing the Final Fall on Our Democratic Republic. Uh, he's got also a book, uh, Global Crisis, National Renewal. And his blog of twominds.com is one of CNBC's top alternative finance sites. Welcome, Titus and Charles. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. I thought we'd begin, uh, Titus, with uh, a discussion, a broad overview, what, what are special economic zones, special administrative regions, uh, what is Tipolis all about, and what are the benefits and features of international cities? Yeah. Special economic zones are not really much discussed in the public or well-known, uh, albeit they, they play an extremely important role uh, and have a growing um, uh, importance worldwide. And the reason why they are not so in the focus is that they're not existing in the US or in the European Union, um, because they, for some reason we can discuss later, don't want competing systems uh, within their borders. But the rest of the world, and namely it's about 140 countries out of the 200, 140 countries have uh, kinds of special economic zones 
And the, the, the number has grown from humble beginnings in the 1960s, a handful, to uh, about 6,000 today. Not all of them are active, some are only on paper, but several hundreds are very active. And special economic zone means normally that other rules apply in that zones for businesses, for, for, for um, industry, then in the rest of the country, mostly it's export import tariffs are, are, are not there, also tax reliefs and some regulatory reliefs. So usually the special economic zones um, have started as kind of free ports, warehousing, where you could just store things without paying uh, import duties. Uh, then they have developed to more manufacturing side. Um, one of the early ones is the Shannon Airport in Ireland when the planes were capable of reaching the US directly without a stopover in Shannon. They created that idea to to make easier rules for business to attract at least some companies and uh, that, so that the people could get other jobs, right? And there were several thousand people there. And that worked. And then one of the typical manufacturing zones is, for example, Jebel Ali Free Zone in, uh, in Dubai, which is, I think, one of the biggest in the world. And um, they have attracted... Uh, 10,000s of companies uh, are producing there, right? So, and this has been copied uh, all over the world um, to a certain degree. And what we can see is a kind of a trend that, uh, and it's also competition. If you are a country that wants to attract businesses and all your neighbor countries already have special economic zone where there's basically low tax and no export import tariffs, then you have to come up with something else. And so over time, it developed that these zones were then extended to uh, um, um, tourism, healthcare, and finally even finance. So you have Dubai International Financial Center as a totally new concept saying, we want to attract, uh, or back in 2010, wanted to attract um, companies in the finance sector, but they were unhappy with Sharia law. So the, the Sheikh asked his advisors, what should we do? But they said, okay, well, most financial hubs have a common law system. So why not introducing a common law system? Yeah, but it's only halfway because people should have the trust that independent courts are judging on that. Okay, let's import some judges. <laughs> from the UK and from Singapore and uh, create our own court system within the DIFC, right? And that happened and eventually was very successful. Uh, one square kilometer of Dubai is now responsible, which is the DIFC, is responsible for 13% uh, or even 14% of the GDP. So you can see that with the right system, that which is different from the rest of the country, enormous success can be reached and our our view is that for competition reasons alone uh the next step now is what, what's already happening in dfc it's becoming more a city than just a zone for businesses because the people also want to live there and they also do not want to be subject with their families on sharia law family law so they created an own family law and so step by step you're creating a, a different jurisdiction within as jurisdictions or one country, two systems. And we think international cities is the logical next step so that there are cities which are still 
under the sovereignty of uh, of a country like DFC is still under the sovereignty of Dubai, but they have large internal autonomy to create their own things and have in my proposal is to make it a, a government as a service product so that uh, you really sign a service contract with the government and you don't pay taxes, you pay your service fee. And if <laughs> the service is not provided uh, or is badly provided, you can keep money back, right? So you and can claim damages even, which is normal in the service sector, but not normal in the governance sector. So, <laughs> and we think, okay, this is a this is a, a development that has already started, and is the logical next step is that those things we call them international cities will happen. And my company Tipolis wants to be uh, one of the main players in that sector. So it's a for-profit entity and these cities will be for-profit governance models. And still they will be much cheaper for the average person than the ledger, than the legacy states. So this is the sector I'm in. And I hope I could give you some overview about what, what was happening in the special economic zones in the, in the last decades. Oh yeah. That's, that's a great uh, introduction, Titus. Very, interesting with the many benefits and charles uh, based on the many writings that you've done you've touched a lot a lot on these concepts of decentralization localization uh self-initiative economic growth can, can you elaborate uh based on your writings to provide some context to to the work that titus is doing well <clears throat> titus I'd, I'd love to have your um uh comments or elaboration on um, the, the themes that um, I see in, in your work that are truly um, have the potential to change the global economy, which is you're introducing the core dynamics of, of markets, which I, I think is competition and transparency. Because, um, and these two uh, dynamics then drive um, adaptation. And um, which of course uh, is the way that nature <laughs> and economies work, right? You adapt or you die. And the legacy states um, are, are mired in like so many layers of dysfunction that what I, what I see as such, so, such great potential in your work is, is to um, institutionalize competition and transparency that then will allow for um, rapid evolution or adaptation and, and, and as we all know, the world's changing fast. And so those two elements, if we can institutionalize them and protect them from the sort of corruption and centralized uh, control that we experience in the legacy states, then that will be a fantastic model. So whatever you can uh, add to the whole idea of, of, of protecting competition and transparency from um, regulatory capture and and the sort of centralization that that um, we see it you know monopolization and and, and uh, entrenched interests and all the things that make legacy states so dysfunctional yeah i mean i think that's indeed that the main topic right we, we the advantage um that our concept ideas have is that they're already tested in the real world in the normal markets right so um, because we are saying or i'm saying that um, government is a service and it's disguised as all kinds of de demigod-like will of the people, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, you want protection of life, liberty, and property, and you should be willing to pay something for that, right? I mean, it's a fair deal. 
Yes. Everybody understands that. And that's exactly what we're offering. We're saying we are not pretending to save the world. We are saying we are protecting the core things that are stayed even to the old philosophers, uh, uh, John Locke and David Hume and, um, and, and Mises and Hayek and all them. What the state legitimately protects a life, liberty and property, and therefore you pay something, we make this as a service and which is based on a contract. And the contract says, and that is also partly answer to your question, how can you protect that? Um, the contract says, here is what we provide to you and here's what you have to pay for it. And there may be an inflation adaption clause, but other than that, we cannot change this contract unilaterally later but, right, because that's not possible with contracts, right? So the other thing that we already have discovered in the market is it's a bilateral contract and it's not possible for one party to change that contract unilaterally, right? Normally both parties have to agree. And, and that is the model that we are taking over. We say, okay, here are, maybe there are some areas where we can change, for example, traffic rules or whatever unilaterally, but the main things that the, the important things, yeah, um, they must be uh, in the contract. And this product would not be attractive if we could change the contract any day. Or if you couldn't, if you say we come uh, come come up with all kinds of changes, and if you don't like it, you you can leave, like like Google does, right? Here are, here are our new terms. I mean, we could do that, but that would be not attractive. So we are abstaining from that. And that is the main protection because that means, and frankly, it's also a trick because I have observed that in, in the leg legacy systems, the problem is in my view, is a result of wrong incentives, wrong incentives for both the rulers and the ruled. Because the rulers had have zero disadvantage <laughs> if they make bad decisions, right? Again, basically do, once they are established, they can do what they want. They can really, uh, and, and they can buy votes. They can just dis distribute other people's money to buy votes. And the, the, the but the ruled also have bad incentives. They can, they can, they have the impression that they can vote free benefits into their pockets, right? <laughs> Which is also a kind of irresponsible behavior. And in so far, we say, no, there's a contract between, for example, if Richard was a citizen in one of our international cities, we as the operating entity would have a, a contract with Richard saying, okay, this is what you have to pay, say $3,000 per year. And that's what you get from us. And then not a majority, not your neighbor, not anybody in the government or from us can say, are we going to change the rules? Because it's only bilaterally between Richard and, and us. And the same is true with all others. They have only bilateral contracts. And that creates no forum for rent seekers, which can be hijacked because it's not there, right? And you you are protected like in normal countries by if you are dissatisfied, have a conflict of interest with us, you go to independent outside courts or arbitration. So that is um, uh, very transparent because everything is in the contract, right? So there, um, and there is no, okay, I do you a favor, you do me a favor thing because either you can do it because it's in, it's, it's in a contract or you can't. 
And so if a country attacks us and say, yeah, we have new rules, mask mandates, or we have to save um, the world for getting burned in climate emergency. So you now have to stop all cars. We say, yeah, we hear what you're saying, but sorry, we can't do that because we cannot change the contracts of our citizens, right? That is the protection that we are seeking and uh, the idea how to overcome all these problems that have been um, the plague for so many systems in the past. Actually, on that uh, vein, the the issue of independence, like how independent mm -hmm. would the or could the special economic zone international city be from the rest of the country? Uh, would they still be subject to uh, a lot of people have been discussing these World Health Organization amendments, yeah. would that trickle down into the special economic zone? Well, normally it would, but because the special economic zones and traditional special economic zones are not very politically independent, they just enjoy some privileges, uh, reliefs in some areas. So that that's why we uh, say what we are creating is more SAR, special administrative region, so the first example of SAR were Hong Kong and Macau, when when they came back to China, when it was said they keep their system, but are part of China. So they called special administrative regions. Today, I would say international financial centers like in Dubai now, the copycat in in Abu Dhabi and Astana, they also they are also special administrative regions. And the same is true for the Honduras CDE zones. Um, because they have a far-reaching autonomy, they're open also for residents, not only for companies. You know, in most special economic zones, you can only work, you cannot live there. So you come in the morning, go in the evening. <laughs> At night, there's only the guards there. But mm -hmm. in our ideas, it's 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 a real um, internal autonomy. Ideally, the typical special uh, administrative region model is that foreign policy, defense stays with the host nation and everything else uh, is up to the regulation that can be created in the special administrative region or an international city. Now, this is up to negotiation. So the limited experience that we have, because this is all very new, is that most countries do not want these zones to have different criminal laws. And that is mo not a big issue. Most of the time we can say, okay, we use, like in Honduras, we use the Honduran criminal code, but it's applied by our own security and our own prosecutors. And nobody wants to end up in a Honduran prison. So <laughs> the zones have have clean prisons to Western, according to Western standards. You have you have legal protection. You can, you can have a lawyer all the time and all this. So, um, Regarding the um, World Health Organization, my experience is that if if we negotiate with a with a country that uh, we want this in the this autonomy, then we we normally say, okay, we do not want to be subject to any international treaties that mm. you conduct from now on. You should exclude us. But what is already have been signed by the host nation it's probably difficult to get out of that right so that that is the situation as it is it's it's, it's as always 
depends on the negotiation and depends on what's doable, or what's feasible in one part of the world and whatnot. But I think, um, as we have seen in Honduras, a far-reaching autonomy is uh, is possible. Interesting. Your thoughts, Charles, on some of these elements like minimal uh, or no regulatory capture, decentralized economic growth. Well, yeah, Titus, I'm I'm very curious about your experience in in um, sort of a, a new model of the rule of law, because as we know, development. Uh, requires some um, attachment to the rule of yes. law. Yeah. And so uh, have you found that there's, I, I, what I see is, as you mentioned in incentives, why would a legacy uh, nation state agree to this kind of autonomy? And, and you're suggesting it's because those are the engines of economic growth that would benefit the legacy state. And so they're willing to give up some of their centralized control in, in exchange for something that they can't create themselves. And I'm just curious, have you found that there's a general um, willingness globally to to stick to the rule of law, which is often, as you know, um, not the usual case? <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, it's more, um, they're sticking to it because of comp competitive fears, right? It's more reputational issues. So if, 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 if they disregard their own agreements with us as foreign investors, they um, making themselves a bad name for all other international investors. It's not that they um, cherish the rule of law for itself. right? <laughs> and that is happening in Honduras at the moment is um, what they call democratization which means you can change all the co contracts and rules that you have made at will if you have a, have a dem democratically elected majority. And of course, if this happens, nobody wants to invest any longer. So what, what happened in the world is that these international arbitration courts were popping up. Then there was these international agreements like the New York Convention where 160 states have signed that they will follow those international arbitration awards and everybody who's making a larger investment in a foreign country, especially of the second and third world, will have this arbitration clause in their contract, right? And now that Honduras uh, socialist government doesn't want to stick to what they have promised, they come up to, to question the whole system and have won some support of the Democratic Party. But that would mean going back 50 or 70 years. And that's not going to happen. Because if this was true that a country can just cancel any contract with a foreign company because they have a democratic majority for that, that means that no, no more foreign direct investment will take place unless it's guaranteed by some superpowers or whatever. So that is the, the answer is in Honduras that we have, or even the Hondurans who have created that law, they have established a lot of legal protections. Like even if the law is repealed, it will remain in force for the existing zones and for a period that is as long as is the longest one in an international agreement. And there was an international agreement between Honduras and Kuwait, which was probably done for that purpose. And uh, it says it's 50 years, right? And then now what happened is that the, the Honduran government, the new Honduran government is hostile to those zones and was threatening them. And then Prospera has sued them before the international 
uh, arbitration court for for uh, investment disputes in Washington for for ten billion dollars. This is fifty years lost profits, right? Not to get this ten billion, but just to bring the government back to the negotiation table because they said, "Hey, look, you have created this law. Your parliament has has done this. You have even changed the constitution for this. You have approved us." And you have promised that we can remain for 50 years. You cannot just undo this unpunished, right? And that's absolutely normal, right? And and so far, I think this is the message that is now sent is that you can create those zones in order to attract companies and investments that otherwise would not come, but you have to stick to the promises you made. Right, like in all other business, you are do you doing with with foreign companies, right? So, and and this is also um, something which I heard that everybody's expecting that the socialists uh, uh, government will lose the next election because they are performing badly, and all other big parties have already obviously announced that they are willing to uh, to renegotiate with the existing zones, right? So it's unfortunate that. One of the first projects of these new types has already these troubles. But on the other hand, it's a good thing because if they survive, then everybody knows, okay, they can survive even a hostile government in the host nation. And it's probably happening not so often because after these experience in the future. Interesting. And uh, actually, could could this approach be beneficial for Argentina, which recently uh, did a big change with the election of the libertarian and Austrian school economist, yep. Javier Millet. I mean, does an approach make sense uh, with the big country of Argentina to look at small special administrative regions, small economics, special economic zones, and to start small with the vision of Millet in those zones, build, build several of them uh, increasingly to encompass the whole country eventually, but at least start small, build small zones. Does that make sense, that approach? Or? Yeah, probably not as a first step, because I think he's still in, he still wants to reform the whole country. That's still the idea, right? So that, that would be a distraction from his big plan. But given that he has not a majority in parliament uh, or only with, uh, with conservative party, um, it, and, and has a lot of, uh, well, uh, uh, headwind now with the unions and all that. Maybe there's a time, maybe next year or so, when he thinks, okay, maybe it's better, as you said, to start small and show what a real free market economy can achieve if let loose. And then it would be the time to create exactly those uh, special administrative regions or special economic zone plus or international cities or whatever and and try out new things as an experimental sandbox and that can be taken over by the rest of the country if the, the country likes it right if the public likes what they are seeing and and the other big thing is that this is also a potential legacy for Millet because these zones would even survive uh, uh, for the next 50 or 100 years if there were many changes in government due to their special structure. 
And in so far, the answer is maybe not now, but uh, yes, <laughs> is definitely an option uh, for somebody who has understood the Austrian economics and um, and especially in that situation. Yeah, that's interesting. Your, your thoughts, Charles, like on the idea of showcasing international cities to the rest of the country or jurisdiction as a model environment? Yeah, that's, um, that's a great point, Richard. And I, I was thinking that um, as I listen to you guys uh, discuss this, that the critical elements here are the free flow of talent and capital, right? That's what we're that's what we're trying to make use of. In other words, the instead of coercion, which is the more and more the legacy state approach to solving problems, right? To coerce people to do this or that, this approach is to um, use opportunity and incentives to attract people of their own free will, right? And so that that requires a free flow of talent and capital. And so and those will go to where they're treated best. And so I, I have a question for Titus is, you know, that the um, a lot of the world is suffering from not just economic problems or financial issues, but um, the, the lifestyle is in, in cities or, or nations is just not comfortable. In other words, you, you know, you can't be yourself or um, it, it's not an enjoyable experience, right? Uh, because of, of either um, defective uh, infrastructure, pol you know, pollution, um, police state coercion, you know, mm -hmm. on and on and on. And so and there's a word for this. Um, I can't think of a better word, but it's something like conviviality. Like, is it a nice place that you want to live and work? And so, and that requires, of course, a lot of different elements, you know, it's, um, and so I'm, I'm sure that you've thought through how to make um, this, this new model of, of, of free cities, a, a place that people want to live and work for their, for the pleasure of it, as well as for the economic opportunities. Absolutely. And, and that's because, as you know, we are, or maybe it wasn't said explicitly, but this is a 100% voluntary system, because if you do not want to sign the contract, we cannot force you, right? That, yes. that means two things. One, we have to start from scratch in an area that is uninhabited. Two, we have to be attractive to attract people. And that means it must have a high quality of living. It must fulfill exactly the things that you mentioned um, in order to be so attractive that people are taking the burden to move from place A to, pla to, to a new place. And um, this is only um, doable or feasible if, if it's attractive in not only that you have a job there, but it's, uh, I mean, I can make an example of the other zone uh, in Honduras, uh, Morazan, which was designed more as a Honduran worker zone. And as the government was became hostile, the three big companies in the in the zone said, okay, we are stopping investments. We want to wait on how this is playing out and not do anything any longer there. But the people were not going away. The workers wanted to stay there and many more wanted to come there because even as a residential place alone, that was so much more attractive than the, the surrounding areas of Honduras. I, I've seen a picture that was shown to me from Morazan. I mean, this is these are relatively cheap houses, right? It's 
uh, $150 per month's rent, but you have, you have a 60 square meter house with air conditioning, a small kitchen and um, washing machine. Um, so for Hondurans, uh, for Honduran uh, lower class people, it's, it's a fantastic um, place. And I've seen this picture where a young couple with their dog was sitting at dark beyond the traffic, um, uh, beyond the street light. And people told me, you see this picture? This was not be this would not be possible outside of the zone. I said, why not? In the, in the town of Coloma. Yeah, because nobody's going out at night because of the gangs and the crime. You cannot go in front of your house at night, right? In the dark. Wow, right? So you can see even those supposedly small things, which is security, they can make your life so much better. And and all these things, and we have all kinds of ideas, um, city should be walkable, should also be uh, visually attractive and um and all these we have an own architect right uh at, at tipolis who's who's taking care of those things and um so uh there are all kinds of ideas um and i think we have to think about those things because otherwise people are not attracted by, by our product but uh, be assured i mean if you look at only a morazan and, and prospera in honduras you will see what that means they are both beautiful um and target group is a bit more middle class here and and working class there but that is possible so it's far from being a place for the rich only that's what people say but it's not true international city is designed to be a city that means all kinds of income classes should live there and um it it, it means um most of the security of life, liberty, and property is is the is the foremost thing you would expect from a state, and they are not delivering on it, right? Many are not delivering on that. But this is even Thomas Hobbes back then said, if you if the state cannot protect you, it has absolutely no right to demand uh, that you obey its rules, its orders. Because he's not fulfilling his main task, so why should you follow the, their orders? And mm -hmm. so that is the most important product: is that is security and safety, right? Because nobody wants to leave the house and being afraid that they are robbed or killed. So this is the first and foremost thing. And once this is done, then all the other things come. What about? cheap electricity, good internet, and should look nice, and and all these things. Right. So, but we are we're definitely thinking about all of these and discussing this every every week. Very interesting. Some good points there, uh, Titus. And you mentioned architecture at Tipolis. To to what extent, or, or to what extent is, is the um, the company involved with uh, the different aspects of setting this up? Like, is it only in legal infrastructure mm -hmm. uh, architecture, or does it? also move into the physical infrastructure uh, environment as well. You yeah. know, what is the the scope of, of Tipolis? Yeah, the, the, good question. Um, I mean, the scope is scalable, but I would say the ideal model is, uh, is, is, is indeed that we are creating the legal framework together with the host nation, make a contract with the host nation. There must be a law, right? 
um, in, in, in the full parliament granting this autonomy that we are seeking. And, and then we are, uh, make a contract based on this law with the government as the operator of this international city. And the main, I mean, since we are for-profit company, we want to make money with that, right? So money made by state services is possible, economies of scale, from 10,000 people on upwards, you can make money with state services, but not really much. So the, the main point is that you own the land lifted in value by just creating a better framework and then sell the land, lease the land, rent the land. So we will then bring on board professional large-scale real estate developers. They will make most of the of the of the business when it comes to uh, to building, right? Uh, but infrastructure and all those things that depends. Sometimes you can you can um, put this burden on the on on a large real estate developer. Sometimes you have to do it by yourself and co-finance or, or, or finance it by income from land sales and things like that, or even a um, a toll road or whatever. So um, I would say Tipolis is the and will remain the general operator of the international city, but it will not do all the building by itself, right? It will maybe the initial phase uh, because nobody is, is, is coming until something is there, but very quickly then, um, even from day one, we, we are partnering then with, with uh, professional real estate developers. Mm -hmm. And uh, overall, what, what do you see as the challenges of setting up international cities? Well, um, several challenges are, the, the biggest challenge is to get this legal autonomy. Right, that normally it, it's it's in most countries it's not possible because they're not willing to grant that uh, autonomy at the moment. But I think this is the same development that we have already seen with the more traditional special economic zones. In the beginning, it's only few countries. Well, if they're successful, then everybody wants to copy that. And I think this is this is what we can expect here. Um, I think it's now only question of of couple of more years that we see more projects like in Honduras popping up. And that means normally, out of my experience, at least two years negotiations with the government before you have something in hands and then there's nothing built, right? So you, um, uh, the other thing is financing. You have to to find people who are willing to finance that, uh, that con initial construction um, uh, because it's a relatively new concept. But for, for those people, it, they're not so much interested in the political autonomy as aspect. And for them, it's a normal real estate project, right? So th that is what I can say from, my, from our limited experience. So the biggest obstacle is certainly to get the project going uh, and have substantial autonomy that justifies to say that is an international city and it's not just a special economic zone plus where you have some tax relief, right? And that is not enough and in so far this is the hardest part and that is what takes long and we we had a, a project in west africa where we have been nearly there law was passed in parliament we had a, negotiated a 40 pages contract with the government yeah and then there was 
was a changing government before we could start right so that that can happen and and the new government doesn't want the project because it's from the old government and, and things like that mm -hmm. the, the political risk is always there but i think once we are established and can show that it's working it will be attractive for the host nation and will then become attractive for other countries as well uh is it risky is it is it insecure at the moment yeah of course it's a new market uh, but somebody has to do it so I, i've not written my book just to trade produce ideas i wanted to do it because i'm an entrepreneur um uh, if, if i can't do it then it's who should do it right and i there are other people around that have similar ideas um and you can you can really see there's a kind of momentum development and now in this direction, even countries like Saudi Arabia, they have created this NAOM, which is basically this, this model, right? One country, two systems. And, and, and outspokenly, they want to be innovative and business friendly and more liberal than the rest of Saudi Arabia. So this is already a kind and can be, become a kind of a template, even if you, you can have different opinions on that project. And it, it's, it's it's steered by the state and it's probably not a private governance model, but it it is another step in that direction. And in so far, the more of those projects are, that are popping up, the more normal it will be, it will become for the rest of the world to adapt so such models. And who knows, in 20 years from now or 30 years from now, it's maybe the term international city is quite normal for people. <laughs> Mm. That's great. Interesting. And Charles, uh, uh, can you summarize for us based on your writings and blog postings, uh, a, a lot of the challenges, especially in the indebted Western world, how how uh, this this new approach uh, can bring, um, you know, solutions and advantages? Yeah, that's a great uh, summary uh, topic, Richard. I, I was going to say that um, I think we all know the legacy states and the legacy global economy based on hyper-financialization, speculation, and coercion, essentially, uh, that those models are going to fail. And so I think there's going to be a desperation, if I could mm -hmm. use that word, in the, in the legacy states to find some way to, to um, stave off their collapse, frankly, you know, because uh, with from hyper uh, amounts of debt or um, people fleeing um, coercive systems and so on. So I, I see this tremendous potential in, in what Titus is proposing and doing in that the, um, the free flow of talent and capital will go to the international cities because, that, because that's where it will attract the most ambitious and productive. And then the capital will flow out of unproductive speculative uh, sort of churn and I mean, into something productive and useful and and so um th those are two huge uh positives in the global economy and then the other interesting thing i want to mention is as these take off as international cities attract the best and the brightest and the capital and they, they're so much more productive and and enjoyable than the legacy systems the legacy cities will have to get their act together and start competing with the international cities that will raise the entire global um, absolute level of freedom yeah. and so those th i'm just um tremendously impressed with this this whole idea and and uh th th what you're putting together and i think it is the future of the global economy yeah thank you and uh, in interestingly uh, 
other people have, have said that too. They said, yeah, no, at the end, they will need you, right? Because this is the only uh, working elements in, in, in some countries that, that prevents that the, the high caliber people are leaving. And we have recently, I cannot disclose the country, but it's, it's a significant country. Um, um, they had the investment agency of this country has said, this is a good idea because we have so many talented young entrepreneurs. They are all complaining about the bureaucracy and they all want to leave. Mm. Now we create an international city and they stay, <laughs> right? Mm. That, that was the government people saying that, right? Which is yeah. basically confirming what, what, uh, what, what Charles just, just made that point. Yeah. It is definitely already happening and um i think competition is really the only thing that that can help us uh improve again and and as you said that also with the moment they are st stopping the fighting against that model like you no know, the socialist government in honduras but embracing it then they will see they will have a lot of benefits and they also will see that hey maybe our legacy system has also some need for reform, right? And then we say, hey, you can just copy some of our models, some of our elements, not all of them, right? And and I see this coming, and that's at least my hope that, that this will happen. But I can say the moment we are established, it's a normal market. I call it just the market of li living together. There's a new product in town. It's a better product, so the other products must improve. Otherwise, the buyers will, will not buy them any longer, right? So this is a mechanism we already know, right? And why shouldn't it work in the market of living together the same? Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, great advantages, opportunity, security, safety, Right at, at the top. A any uh, uh, final thoughts, uh, Titus? And also, how can our listeners and viewers learn more about your work? There are two things. There's a, the the um, for profit is Tipolis, which is normally not much that that the listeners can because we are dealing with governments, and then eventually there will be projects, and then you can settle there. But have a look at our website, Tipolis.com. But if you really want to dig deeper, then go to the Free Cities Foundation's website. They have they um, the Free Cities Foundation is a nonprofit entity was founded by me and is not focusing only on the free private city model. It's, it's focusing on all kinds of free cities, alternative mm -hmm. decentralization uh, models that that are out there, even intentional communities, and they have tons of. Uh, uh, material, a very interesting uh, uh, podcast. They, they have blogs. They have a directory where you can see where such models already are existing in the world. And uh, they have a newsletter that is also coming out with with uh, news about things happening in that sector. And that would mean, for example, if Tipolis would open a, an international city and then it would be open to residents, to new residents, to settlers. It will be very probably mentioned in that newsletter. So then the subscribers know firsthand uh, what's going on. So it's free-cities.org, free-cities.org. That's the Free Cities Foundation. 
Great. And and Charles, uh, how can our listeners and viewers learn more about your work also? Um, yeah, visit me at uptominds.com. And I will certainly be writing about um, the tremendous ideas we've discussed today. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Titus and Charles. It's been an interesting discussion and this great potential in this, I think. Yes. Thank you, Richard. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. The FRA Roundtable Insight Show is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the show each involve their own unique risk factors which are not discussed on the show. Any discussions among the panel participants or responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the panel participants and do not take into consideration the listener's suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Please be advised that you invest or speculate at your own risk.